This is the ACO Show. I'm Josh Israel. My guest today is Bijan Salhizadeh. He is the co-founder and a managing director at NaviMed Capital, an investment firm specializing in healthcare investment, and he's also on Allidade's board of directors. When I stopped being a full-time doctor and joined a healthcare business, I knew a fair amount about healthcare, but not a lot about business, and the learning curve has been steep. Bijan is one of my favorite guests to have on the show, just for my own learning. He has a great way of breaking down complicated business and investing terms into clear concepts, and after I talk to him, I can follow business developments at work or even in the news with a little more understanding. He was on the show earlier this year, episode number 116, and I recommend it to you if you want to hear clear, concise explanations of some of the basics of what is venture capital, private equity, what a board of directors does, and about what goes into the decision to take a private company public, which is called an initial public offering or an IPO. Today, we spend the time going into more detail on IPOs particularly what's going on in 2022 that has kept so many companies from being able to launch their own IPOs and how some companies are dealing with being blocked, at least temporarily, from that path to funding. So thanks for joining and take a listen. I think you'll find it interesting too. Bijan Salahizadeh, welcome back to the ACO Show. Glad to be here. Bijan, when we had you back on the show in February, we talked a little bit about the process of IPOs, initial public offerings. Since then, uh, 2022 now, this has been the worst year ever on record for IPOs. What is going on? You're exactly right. And actually, to quantify that before I tell you what's going wrong, in the time period between 2015 and 2019, IPOs of companies, and let's just talk about technology companies, because healthcare has a bunch of biotech in it, but technology venture-backed companies raised 10 to 25 billion per year on average over the five-year period before the pandemic through IPO processes, right? selling their stock to public investors. In 2020, that went way up to 37 billion. 2021, 75 billion. Again, the average for the five years prior to the pandemic, 10 to 25. It jumps to 75 billion in 2021. And what has it been year to date in 2020? Zero for technology venture-backed companies. Okay, so why is that is the question. And the reason why is we are in what's called a risk-off market. People are worried about, and we'll talk about why they're worried, institutional investors, individual investors are worried about what's over the horizon, what's going to happen macroeconomically, and why they want to preserve their cash and not put it in high-risk companies. Most companies that go public are high risk because many of them don't have profits when they're going public. And that's, you know, that explains um, part of what's going on, that the risk appetite has been turned off. And we can talk about why that is if you're interested. Yeah, I assume that most of these investors think that long-term the U.S. economy will be okay. So they have to put their money somewhere. And why would buying an IPO not be a good thing to do? Is it that they are responding to quarterly pressures? Uh, is it animal spirits? What, what do you think it is that everybody at the same time decides that this is not a good thing to invest in? I think it's a little bit of animal spirits because these things have a way of gaining momentum in terms of the, the, the spirit of the market has a way of gaining momentum. But I also think part of the reason is just part of the natural puts and takes of any market. And I just walked through those statistics from how the 
you know, annual IPO dollars and you could look at venture dollars and any metric of risky capital had quintupled in 2021 from the average of the years before. So there's a bit of indigestion. When that historically happens, the quality of the things raising money almost inherently goes down, unless you believe that there's just an equal number every year or more high quality companies being created to raise these kinds of funds. And the answer usually is no. I tend to be a believer that the same number of quality companies a year are being created by great founders. And that kind of might be an average over a very long run. How we choose to finance those is what changes. And so there's a lot of indigestion from companies that thought they'd be profitable a year after their IPO and told the investors. And then they turn around and two quarters after an IPO, they say, oh, you know when we told you it was going to be, we're going to be profitable next year? It's actually three years away. And that has the way of changing the animal spirits. And then, of course, let's not ignore inflation. Inflation is pernicious when it comes to high-risk companies because it impacts growing companies who need to hire a lot of people are really exposed to wage inflation. And that's a lot of the kinds of companies that go public. And the buyer class of IPOs gets really worried that we're going to need their, that company is going to need to raise more dilutive capital going forward to finance that burn that's going to increase because the average employee salary is going up. So there's a lot of these factors combined together to spook people. I just want to add a definition of the term I dropped in here, the, the animal spirits. It's a term used by, I believe, the economist John Maynard Keynes to explain how human emotions drive financial decision-making, particularly in volatile times um, when there's a lot of ins and outs of the market. Um, but if you have pension funds, if you have foundations, endowments that need to put their money somewhere, what, what do they do with it? Well, first of all, let's remember that putting their money into risk capital has been historically a small minority of where pension funds and endowments put their money because they have to preserve the capital they have. If you're an endowment or a pension of firefighters or teachers or police, first of all, you got to preserve the principal. And second of all, a small percentage of the profits you generate every year have to be used to drive the operating budget of, of or the retiree payments. And so they tend to put most of it in what's called fixed income, things like bonds and kind of, you know, things that return something steady every year. Um, and so this IPO adventure money has been a small piece of it. Um, but they are subject to the same animal spirits that we're all subject to. Because at the end of the day, all these pension funds endowments, the committees are just made up of people, people who want to preserve their jobs and don't want to get out over their skis and probably actually got pretty heavily exposed relatively, again, in their small allocation to these risky things over the last few years. So they're trying to digest all the risk exposure they have from the IPOs from 2020 and 2021. And let's not forget a stock market that's down by whatever you measure it from, either the peak valuations of 2020, early 2021, and down you know, 15 percentage points as of today, or you know, any other metric you look at it, you know, down even more than that. And so they, they are looking at their report cards and saying, boy, I don't know if I want more risk assets. I might just park more into C-bills or US you know, government bonds, which is kind of safe. And I can make sure that the endowment has money to pay for the operating budget of the university next year if I do that. When we talked to you in February, you described some of the process of how venture capital gets its money back. Companies typically are sold or IPO within three to seven years. If you are a company, you know, you're looking at year five, six, seven, the investors probably are wanting their money back, but you're in a, a very down market like this. What happens? 
Well, I would say the IPO window, as we talked about, is closed, and that, that sort of underpins the question. So how do you get liquidity for the early investors? And I think the elephant in the room, also the employees want a liquidity path. And I think the answer is, the good news is, there are many more solutions today to that problem than there were even five years ago. There is a proliferation of private funds that provide liquidity options for early investors, what's called secondary type investors, who basically come and buy the position of the early investors. And I anticipate that those funds will do really well over the next two to three years for the same reasons and pressures you think. There will be some funds who were sort of what's called vintage year, the rate, the year the fund was raised, 2009, 10, 11, 12 funds that put in money into early startups in 2010, 12, 11, 13, 14, who in the next couple of years, they're hitting their 10-year mark, which is really the long end of the tail of when they need to make get money back to their investors. And I think those secondary funds will be an option, and it won't be at the price that you would have gotten at a popping IPO market in 2021, but you may not have a choice and you might have to sell. And that's not every fund and that's not every company, but at least there's a menu today of choices that there wasn't even five years ago. Um, now, let's see if that menu stays open. I think it will, because lots of funds have been raised waiting for this moment to come to, to, to invest. I have been reading about some companies that thought they would be going public and are running out of cash and are doing layoffs. Um, why would their investors want them to do that? That seems like in the long term, that will hurt everybody who was hoping to do well financially by these early investments. As opposed to shutting it down completely, you mean? Or Are there not other ways to raise capital? Well, Let's remember something, and, and for your listeners, public markets, stock markets, portfolio managers who invest in stock markets or individual investors like your listeners who might have stock market exposure, you get your what's called your mark. You know every single day the performance of your stock portfolio because you can look it up on Fidelity or Yahoo Finance or whatever. Private companies and private market investors like pensions and endowments for their private fund investments they only look at those marks quarterly. So there's this lag effect, plus they're private companies. So they're not traded on a market. We don't know what the valuation is, right? So there's a bunch of like squishy inputs and we say, oh yeah, we think it's worth the same this quarter as it was last quarter. Well, all the public comps are down 75% digital health since the peak of 2021. How can that private company be worth the same that it was in 2021 and the public company comp is down? So that's a long-winded setup for the answer to your question, which is, you know, raising money and layoffs. The reality is we have a two-headed problem, Josh. The first head of the problem is the business model problem of a lot of companies that raised money in early in 2020 and 2021. They have upside down unit economics, a lot of digital health companies. Their gross margins are upside down. They lose money every time there's a virtual visit or they barely make any growth profit and forget about all the marketing and everything they have. So they need to cut heads. And they're running out of cash and need to raise money. And the reality is they need to change their margin before they can raise money that's not at a deep discount to the last round because the venture fund that put in the money last year sure doesn't want a markdown when the new fund comes in and says, great, the thing you thought that you invested in for a dollar a share last year, we're going to tell you it's worth 25 cents. And then you got to put that on your books as the original venture fund and report to your bosses, your limited partners. So there's a lot of incentives to delay raising that down, down round money, it's called lower priced money, as long as you can. So you don't have to report to your bosses as a venture fund manager 
that that asset you invested in last year, you told them was so great is actually impaired. And so they do layoffs first. They do belt tightening first. They do all the things they can before they have to raise that down round money. Now, at the same time, uh, inflationary pressures are making costs go up and salaries go up. I wonder if this in some small piece contributes to that, because if you're not able to attract new employees with equity, does it make young companies then have to pay higher salaries, which then puts further pressure on them? It certainly does. And I think that becomes part of um, a really bad spiral that some companies can get into and really magnified by markets where raising capital is hard. So as you said, um, the company all of a sudden gets a reputation that its business model is upside down, that the next the valuation is too inflated, which means the next round might be a down round, which means the equity I might get as a new hire employee might actually not be worth what I thought it was worth, the stock option. And so then I say, well, in a growing job market, I say, great, I want more cash. And that becomes part of that spiral and it really hurts the company. Um, in a job market that's tight, like the one we have now, where the chase for great labor talent is everyone's chasing the same people that dynamic is true. And the best people go to the best companies who have the best prospects and they want equity in those companies. And I'd like to think Allidate is one of those companies. That's not a plug, but I think it's true. In, the, in markets where employment is not so tight, where there are many layoffs happening, boy, that whole dynamic changes because then employees become price takers in terms of, I just want a job because I've got to pay my rent. We're not there yet. The labor market is still tight as a drum today as it was a year ago. I was going to an Allidade meeting once in a, in a Southern state. Uh, it was a very depressed town I was driving through and I was looking for the, the medical building where I had my meeting. And suddenly I see over the horizon, a shiny gleaming building surrounded literally by boarded up stores and pawn shops. And I knew immediately that's the medical building, right? That's the building that's being paid for with deficit spending, with Medicare rates that um, are very inflated, uh, for this part of America versus some other part of America, healthcare is often not subject to the normal economic pressures. You know, it is as uh, it is often called an entitlement. You know, certainly for uh, Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, I don't love the use of the term, but essentially something that has to be paid for no matter what. Uh, so, why are healthcare stocks being uh, affected by the same economic pressures uh, in the in the stock market if it isn't financially? Great question. I like to always say healthcare is not entirely recession proof, but it's mostly recession resistant, as you said. So why is it that the stock market, digital health stocks, I think I said earlier, are down 68% in terms of valuation as of September 15th versus January 1st of 2021, which was the peak, the peak of the peak. Why is that? It goes back to the business model question. Um, they were selling you know, dimes for nickels. A lot of the companies that went public, um, sure, they might have had Medicare as a source of revenue or Medicaid as a source of revenue for their treatment of patients or the insurance product they had. But they were upside down on the unit economics, their marketing costs, their enrollment costs, their patient you know, um, uh, cost of customer acquisition dwarfed what they were getting from government or insurance sources for that. And so um, I think you're more likely to see that gleaming office building 
be, continue to be full and leased up and making its payments because the doctors and surgeons and ambulatory surgery centers are continuing to do well because the demand in healthcare is recession resistant mostly, rather than the digital health stocks that relied on risk capital to band-aid over an upside down business model. And that's the divergence between the office building you see and saw and the stock on the public market that went public at the peak of the peak. Now, if you are a company that could go public now, I know we're saying it's it's quite difficult. What would be some considerations to do that versus um, you know additional rounds of venture funding or a, a line at a at a financial institution? What would what's good about a company for going public? Um, I think you have to be brave in this market to go public, even if you're the very best of companies, because of the animal spirits you referred to earlier. That having been said. The market entirely shifted, maybe as fast as I've ever seen. I've do, been doing this for more than 20 years now. I've seen a couple cycles, the, the 2001 crash, the 2009 Great Financial Recession, and now this one's the third one I've seen as an investor. Um, it turned on a dime, okay? It went from being a market that valued revenue as the metric that it judged companies on to a market that and didn't care about profitability, bottom line EBITDA or net income, Bottom line profit, cash flow generation, didn't care about that. All of a sudden went from that to only caring about cash flow generation and EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation. Okay. And it did that because at the end of the day, when you buy a stock, you're buying a small little claim on the future cash flows of the company. That is what buying a stock is. And cash flows can come from the company being bought someday or them div making dividends when they get profitable enough to do dividends. And so the market turned. Today, you have to be a profitable company to dare to go public. You have to not just pretend that you can be profitable in two years, but you have to be profitable right now. And if you look at the companies that are trading on the stock market, the digital health companies, those that are profitable are trading at two or three times median higher valuation than those that are unprofitable in digital health, health tech. Huge divergence. That wasn't true a year or two ago. And so that's what it takes. Doesn't mean you should go public, but that is what it takes at a bare minimum to even have the conversation. As you're describing this, it seems like this is probably where things ought to be, right? In the long run, this is where things ought to be. And that's and 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 as investors, we look at long run. What's the long run? The long run in healthcare over 25 years, going averaging out all the ups and downs, is that healthcare trades at 10 times a 10 times multiple of its annual earnings. That's what a healthcare company trades at. In peak times, it might be 60 times the annual earnings or infinite times the annual earnings, as I just said. And in really trough times, it might be six or seven times. But that is, there's a mean reversion that this market loves to have. It's another version of animal spirits. It bounces to the mean and then it overshoots. And then it goes back up and it undershoots and overshoots and undershoots. And it's just the sine curve with an amplitude and it's anyone's guess where it's going to stop going down or, st or start going up. You are excellent at explaining some complicated topics in ways that are understandable. Can you give us a primer on the difference between the various ways companies go public, including just going to a market like NASDAQ or direct listing or this uh, recently hot and no longer so idea of a SPAC? Yeah, um, I think you've nailed the flavors and I'll quickly say a little bit about each one. So there's the traditional route of going public, 
It's called an initial public offering, the IPO, where you go, you convert from being a private company to listing your shares to the public on one of several exchanges, the two most popular being the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. Essentially no difference. You're essentially doing a financing where the public, all of us, can buy your stock on one of those two exchanges. That's been the traditional way for 100 years. The direct listing is relatively new. You basically bypass the institutions and the investment bankers, and you just place the stock with John Q. Public without all the intermediaries. Spotify did that. A few companies over the years have done that. It's rare. You have to be usually a consumer company so that consumers know who you are, so you don't need the gatekeeper investment banks to float your stock. That's a relatively narrow path and generally not open to healthcare companies because we're not household brand names in healthcare, right? We're, we're, we're kind of more bespoke, we're more institutional. And then the third way is this SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Corp, also called just the blank check company. Now, what is that? That's existed for many decades and it became really popular again two years ago. And all it is, is a group of investors get together and they take a company with no assets public. Now, how do you do that? You just, you just do it. You form a shell company in Delaware and you say, we're going to go public and raise one, two, three, four hundred million dollars. And there's some rules around that that say you can't touch the principal you raise and you get a year or two to go find a company and basically buy that company and then become a real. So you're a publicly traded company and you're just a shell until you find a thing to buy. And the, there are some benefits to doing it that have basically closed in terms of what you can have to disclose about the company you buy. It became the flavor of the day. It's no longer the flavor of the day because many of the companies that went public through the SPAC process in the last two years were not as good in terms of their underlying quality of the revenue and earnings as the ones that went public through IPO. And some of those were really bad, right, in terms of the upside down business model. So the SPAC index is down 80 or 90%. The health tech index is only down 68%. So the SPACs have underperformed an already underperforming market, and there's basically no new SPACs being raised now. So that will go away. It has gone away and won't be an option. And then in 20 years, when the future Josh and the future Bijan are doing the ACO show, uh, they'll talk about SPACs again, and they won't remember that this happened because that, that's another part of the market. People forget because there's nobody around who saw, the, saw that thing before. Is that partly because as a, as a model itself, it's not good, or it's that the companies that did that were fundamentally weaker and now people see SPAC and just don't take a second look. It's the, it's the latter. There's always been a SPAC business. There's always be five, 10 of them a year. And the, the, um, and that's a, it's a thing. It's, it exists. It usually was for cash flowing companies who, for whatever reason, didn't want to go through the regular IPO process. And then all of a sudden, it became this thing where everyone should be looking at SPACs. And as you said, the reason it didn't, they, many did do well is because, unfortunately, adverse selected for lower quality companies because the disclosure requirements were lower until a few months ago. You didn't have to say as much about your financials. You can't in a regular IPO guide to future financials and you can do that in a SPAC process. You can say, well, here's, my, here's what I think my financials will be in 10 years. You can't do that on a regular IPO. You can only show them the backwards financials, kind of hint at the future. In a SPAC, you can say, yeah, in 10 years, I'll look like this. And none of those ended up being true. So people dumped. Now, despite all this, there were some brave companies last year that went public, even in healthcare, and many of them have not done well. Uh, I would imagine that the company uh, employees, the investors were probably happy for that initial liquidity, but are a little less happy now. What happens, what happens to those companies? Well, let's, let's even amend the happy for the initial liquidity. The way an IPO works is that 
um, usually the company, its investors and employees, 99% of the time have to sign what's called a lockup agreement, which means you can't trade a single share of the company, usually for at least six months after the IPO. You are bound to that. And what happened in the last year, as the markets turned south, was a lot of those companies that went public last year that you're referring to, by the time that lockup expired, you were six days plus a month after your public offering where you, the employees and executives and investors could sell their stock. You were down below the last private round price, maybe even below two private rounds before you went public price. So, but despite that, people were still selling because they needed liquidity. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, those companies and their investors, I think one of the downsides in an IPO when the markets go down is that it is inevitable that employees look at the stock ticker every day on Yahoo and Google Finance or whatever. And I've been, I, I was an employee of two public companies before I became an investor, a young kid after med school who went in the dot-com boom and joined a health tech startup in 1999 in San Francisco and got my stock and thought I was worth a million dollars a year after med school. And then I realized that you look at that ticker every day and it goes down and it's really demoralizing when the markets are going down, even if the company's doing fine, it's demoralizing when the whole basket of companies going down. And so um, companies can never pick the time they go public if they have to go public. So the key is to not have to go public, use all other sources of liquidity, like the secondary funds I said. And when you go, you have to have forecast accuracy. You have to know, you have to be really good at predicting what your revenue and earnings next year are gonna be based on the leading indicators. And then you have to have really good gross margins, and bottom line cash flow generation. And you will be good no matter the market. You will be recession-proof. And there is a cadre of companies who went public in the last two years. Many of them generate their revenues from pharma. They're health tech, but generate their revenues from pharma, which is a, which is a really good payer usually for, for pharma IT. And some of them generate their revenues from Medicare um, in, in our universe. But it's a small subset. And sort of, if you look at the two-by-two two quadrant of annual revenue growth, and profitability, you want to be in the quadrant in the long run where you have the highest revenue growth and high profits. And that's by definition, we can't all be great. This is not like we'll be gone. We can, only a few of us can be. And those are the companies that have done well. And everyone else, unfortunately, has really suffered the last year. Well, Bijan Salahizadeh, Managing Director at NaviMed Capital. Uh, really appreciate you coming on. I really feel like I, I get a, a masterclass webinar on investing every time I hear you talk. Thanks for coming Great, on. Josh, thank you so much. This episode of The ACO Show was produced by Leanne Horst, Dan Abman, and Alana Coogan. You can find previous episodes on our website, alladay.com, or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.